Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Or what this week, I should say the bibliography of Stephen King's alter ego, Richard Bachman. Today, I'm going to examine 1987's Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, The Running Man. Classic? I mean, does it really constitute being labeled a classic? I mean, here's the thing about The Running Man. Uh, It's not a good movie. It's a great movie, and it's an awful movie, all rolled up into one perfect snapshot of 1980s sensibilities. Now, I'm going I'm to talk a lot about uh, The Running Man, but first, I just want to take this opportunity to read a listener email. As you know from uh, earlier episodes, I just I really value getting emails from anyone that's listening, and um, as I record this, the... Talisman review just came out, and the the amount of downloads and listens for that particular episode uh, was was definitely the highest that I've that I've had. Uh, so I just want to thank everyone for for that. So here is a listener email from Jerry. First off, Bravo! You do an amazing job at your reviews, and I love listening to them have since the first ones. Your Instagram posts of Nosferatu are the reason why I read that book. I was anxious to see what you had to say about it. I don't find many King fans in my world, so it's fun to listen to other people's opinions. Between you and a Dark Tower page on Facebook, it's about all I have in ways of King talk. My wife's an avid King reader as well, but slow going because of her time commitment to work. She's on her sixth reread of the Dark Tower, and this journey has taken her nine months. I'm pushing for her to finish so I can get her to read some of the ones um, I have as of late. Joyland, Dumaki, Regulators, Nosferatu, Tommyknockers are all a few. Aside from my banter on my, about my king loneliness, lol, I just wanted to know how stoked you were about Joe Hill's Pennywise reference, his true not reference, his making Colorado a powerful evil place much like his father and other kingisms. I feel he's strengthened as a writer by acknowledging his deep connection he shares with his father, and it takes serious brass to be able to own that and say, so what? I have my own worlds, but there are also a lot of my father in them. It just really impressed me in his ability to playfully incorporate all the elements, stay true to Joe, and still show so much light of his father. Sorry, big rambled mess here. Just wanted to get it all out before I forgot something. Thank you so much for your podcast, and always remember, stand and be true. So, um... Uh, Jerry, you know, thank you for writing in um, some of the books that you mentioned, Joyland, Duma Key, Regulators. Uh, th- those are ones that I really, I can't wait to get to. Um, Joyland, because I, I read it. I mean, it just came out a couple years ago, but I, I think that rereading it again, I'm going to have a lot to say. Duma Key is an interesting one because I did not like it upon the first reading. But like I've said with some of Stephen King's um, early to mid-2000 books, uh, like Lisey's Story and Dumaki specifically, I didn't like them, but I also didn't go into it um, with an open mind. Uh, and, And being younger at the time of the release of these books, I wasn't in the right mindset. You know, these are stories about being a little bit older and and life at a different stage than I'm currently at right now. But, you know, I had expected earlier King. I wasn't given earlier King, nor should I have received earlier King. 
Um, so I want to go back with uh, a much more objective mind and be able to, to really sink my teeth into into those books. Regulators, I just can't wait because that's a book that nobody talks about. Um, and it's very appropriate that I'll be talking, you know, um, about regulators today because we're, we're still on the Richard Bachman train. And this is technically a Richard Bachman book. Um, but Regulators is great. I, I personally read it, uh, you know, when it was released, it was released simultaneously with the publication of Stephen King's version of the same story, Desperation. I read Desperation first and then Regulator second. I think that maybe because I had read Desperation first, that was just where my preference was. But I love Regulators um, because I've reread it a couple times uh, since then. And just the imagery alone is just so bonkers, so crazy, so imaginative. It's something that I would just love to see captured in film. I mean, just when you see the the regulators come rolling down that hill on that summer day, it, it just I, I have that scene firmly entrenched in my head, and I know what it would look like if it was played out on the big screen. So I can't wait to reread that again, so I can go into much more love and much more detail in a review. Uh, wow, six times reading the Dark Tower—that is something. Tell your wife congratulations. I I haven't heard that one before. That's a lot. That's. That's great. I mean, I am going to be on my, or maybe my fourth reread for books one through four, I would say. I will be on my second or third, yeah, I'll be on my third reread of Wolves of the Kala and Song of Susanna. And by the time I get to the Dark Tower itself, it'll be my second time reading it. So I am not, I am not there. Um, but, uh, you know, as my podcasts, I think can attend, attest to, there's definitely a lot of material in there that you won't be able to pick up the first time or second time. I mean, this is my fourth time around and I'm still picking things up. So that's great. You know, keep on going. So Jerry, thank you for writing in. Feel free to write in again. And just thank you for the email. Uh, okay. So with the email over, I now it's time to get back into what this is all about. We are talking today about The Running Man. And I think the biggest thing that we have to talk about in regards to The Running Man is the fact how different it is to the original novel. I mean, so far, I'd say that the only other movie that has differed as much from the source material uh, has been The Shining. And if you had issues with how much Kubrick changed King's original text, then you probably hate The Running Man. I mean, with that said, I mean, the changes to The Running Man, it's not unexpected. It's 1987. You hire Arnold Schwarzenegger as your star. You're going to need to cater to the big action beats that 1987 requires. The novel was more of a thriller than anything else. I mean, this is a 1980s action movie. And in that regard, it does not disappoint. I mean, the movie is ridiculous and in all of the right ways. Whereas the novel kept the main character in the open world, this novel shoves Ben into boxed-off quadrants that resemble video game levels. It takes the sprawling, amazing race-type quest and converts it into a more recognizable, for its time, game show. Remember, at this time, game shows are what constituted as reality television. It didn't look like it does today. So it's no surprise that the conceit of the story is altered to resemble what's recognizable for its time. Similarly, the faceless black op-styled hunters in the novel are made cartoonish and larger than life, which speaks directly to the wrestling boom of the 1980s. I'll get to the specific differences between the book and the movie at the conclusion of this review. In the meantime, 
Because the movie is so different from the novel, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary to provide context for my running thoughts. And typically during the movie reviews, I don't do this because I've just reviewed, uh, reviewed the books the week before. And uh, for the most part, the book you know, uh, plots and the movie plots are, are pretty similar. So that's why I've always re uh, avoided uh, reading a summary of the events of the story for the movie reviews because they've just been so similar. But like I said, this is just so different. I feel like if I'm going to talk about the movie, I have to put it into context. So in 2017, after a worldwide economic collapse, American society has become a totalitarian police state censoring all cultural activity. The government pacifies the populace by broadcasting game shows where convicted criminals fight for their lives, including the gladi gladiator style The Running Man, hosted by the ruthless Damon Killian, where runners attempt to evade stalkers and near certain death for a chance to be pardoned. In 2019, Ben Richards, a police pilot wrongly convicted of a massacre, escapes from a labor camp and seeks shelter at his brother's apartment. He finds it's now occupied by Amber Mendez, a composer for ICS, the network that broadcasts The Running Man. Richard asks Mendez about the whereabouts of his brother, and she says that he was taken for re-education, possibly hinting at his fate. Taking Amber hostage, Richard attempts to flee to Hawaii, but she alerts airport security and Richards is captured and taken to ICS. There, Killian tries to convince him to participate in The Running Man, saying that if he refuses William Laughlin and Harold Weiss, members of a resistance movement that Richard had met, will be forced to participate instead. Reluctantly, Richard agrees, but learns that Killian had enrolled Laughlin and Weiss as runners anyway. As the game begins, Richards and his friends are attacked by the first stalker, Sub-Zero, but they fight back with Richards killing Sub-Zero, the first time a stalker has ever died on the show. Laughlin and Weiss search for the network's uplink facilities, which they realize are in the game zone. Amber sees a falsified news report on Richard's capture and, suspicious of the media's veracity, does some investigation. She learns the truth about the massacre of which Richard's was convicted, was captured and sent into the game zone. The runners split up, each pair pursued by a different stalker. Buzzsaw critically wounds Laughlin and is killed by Richard's. Weiss and Amber locate the uplink and learn the access codes, but Dynamo finds them and electrocutes Weiss. Amber's screams lead Richards to her, and the two evade Dynamo. The stalker's buggy flips, trapping him inside. Refusing to kill a helpless man, Richard leaves Dynamo alive as the studio and home audiences watch. He and Amber return to Laughlin, who, before dying, says that the Resistance has a hideout within the game zone. Back at ICS, Killian sees Richard's popularity growing, with viewers betting on him to win instead of the stalkers. Off-camera, Killian tries to offer Richard's a job as a stalker, but when Richard's refuses, Killian sends the next stalker, Fireball, after him and Amber. Fireball chases them into an abandoned factory, where Amber discovers that the game's previous winners were actually killed, never having truly won in the first place. Fireball goes after Amber, but Richard's rescues her and kills him. Frustrated and running out of options, Killian fakes the death of Richards and Amber at the hands of Captain Freedom, a retired stalker who has refused to go after them. In the game zone, Richards and Amber are captured and taken to the Resistance's hideout, where they learn of their deaths. Using the access codes, the Rebels get into the ICS's control room, broadcasting footage which exonerates Richards and reveals the truth about the game's previous winners. 
As Richards heads to the main studio floor, shocking the audiences who had watched him supposedly die, Amber fights and kills Dynamo, the last remaining stalker. Richards confronts Killian, who after his bodyguard Sven decides he's taken enough abuse from Killian and leaves the studio, says he created the television show to appease America's love of reality television and televised violence. In response, Richards decides to give the audience what Killian says they want by sending him to the game zone in a rocket sled. The sled hits a billboard and explodes, killing Killian to the delight of the audience. Richards and Amber share a kiss as they walk out of the studio. So on to my analysis. As soon as the movie starts, as soon as it starts, immediately 80s music hits the screen. Right away, I'm telling you, I am hooked. It is so dated in the 1980s. It's like I'm time traveling. Sometimes you can make an argument that the more dated a movie is, it doesn't hold up to present day rewatching. Uh, sometimes, though, I'm going to argue that the more dated a movie is, it gives it a little bit more of an endearing quality. I mean, between the outdated visuals of the running men and the very unflashy Star Wars scroll against the red screen, it places the movie in a very, very specific time period. It tells me, as a modern viewer, you know, one who lived through this particular time period, by the way, what I should expect from this rewatch. Granted, and I'm, I just put it, you know, up front right there because I lived through it, and this is kind of what I, I'm looking for now. There's a little bit of nostalgia. I mean, like, I get it, and I'll, I'll say that it's a very subjective experience. It's one that I lean into at this point uh, rather than lean away from. But at the end of the day, as soon as the movie started, as soon as it started, I wanted to watch more of it. So I, I don't know how objective this, this review is going to be. So the, the red fades to black, and a helicopter... Uh, races across the sky, and we meet the man himself, the one, the only, former governor of California, the Terminator, Dutch, call him what you will, it is Arnold Schwarzenegger, he is our pilot. Already it's a departure from the novel, with Richards refusing to open fire on rioting citizens. Now remember that in the book, Ben Richards is a hard man with a hard life. He's lower class, living in an apartment with a wife who has to prostitute herself to make money. Most of this movie feels like a current-day parody of an 80s movie, don't get me wrong. But to be fair, the original novel reads like a parody of hard-boiled fiction. So whether it's unintentional or intentional, both versions play out like a satire in their own ways. What the initial change does is open up the movie with an immediate conflict. Whether, whether it's good or bad, I mean, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, Arnold is ordered to open fire. He stands up to those orders. We see the harshness to this world and the inner strength of his character. Now, with that said, and this goes back to the endearing quality, uh, I said endearing, not necessarily good, um, Arnold's line delivery comes across like an Arnold impersonation rather than Arnold actually acting. You know, it, it might have less to do with Arnold himself, who, by the way, I'm just going to put it out there, I mean, the guy can act. You know, I mean, he's demonstrated acting skills at this point, and, and I think that it has more to do with either director or the lines that he has to deliver. You know, I, I think that people like to make fun of Arnold's acting ability, but... I mean, he was a superstar for a reason, and it just it wasn't because of just his physique. You know, I mean, it's the same reason why he was elected the governor of California. I, he's very charismatic. He's a very charming star. Maybe, he's, I don't know, maybe some people think that the accent's a hindrance. Yeah, I'd say it's a strength. It gives him even more charm. And I'm not saying this because I'm a child of the 80s, and all I've ever known in life is a world where Arnold Schwarzenegger was an action star. I mean, I really think that he has chops. I just don't think that this opening is the best example of what he has to give. 
Now, with that said, I mean, the movie doesn't waste any opportunity to show us that they've hired Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because less than three minutes into the movie, Arnold walks across the screen carrying a steel beam like it's a pack of toilet paper. You know, he's been a, uh, you know, a part of pop culture for so long, it's easy to forget how giant he actually was. Times have changed. Um, you know, our, our expectations for action heroes, uh, you know, require actors to be in a certain shape, but it's not the same level of just big and looking giant. You know, I mean, times have changed. So, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I mean, whenever a Marvel movie comes out, that, that whoever the, the lead actor is, there's a certain expectation there that that actor has to get into some serious shape. But it's a different, you know, it's it's still big, but it's it's very, very shredded, right? Um, I mean, at this point in his career, I mean, Arnold is still the Terminator. I mean, the dude is a physical monster. And if you're making an action movie in the 1980s and it stars uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, there's a few things that you have to include. You know, one is a demonstration of Arnold's strength, you know, which we've already witnessed with the steel beam. Two is a shootout. You need, you need the shootout. And that occurs when Arnold and his gang uh, attempt to break out of the facility. Third uh, is the banter in between bursts of gunfire. Five is probably the most important, and this movie has many of number five on display, and that's the one-liner. Like when Schwarzenegger lifts a man up in the air and asks him, need a lift? Before hurling him to his death. And I'm sorry, guys, whenever I, I reference a line, I know that you might want to hear it. I'm not going to do it in a Schwarzenegger impersonation. Another Schwarzenegger staple is the gore which we get to see when Chico makes a run for it, even though uh, the, the fields have yet to be deactivated. And we find out what happens when the collar starts to go off. We get a pretty good head explosion from it. Another thing about Arnold is that he's a bona fide in real life cigar aficionado, uh, and he gets to chomp away on one in this movie. Now, when I think of Schwarzenegger and a cigar, I always think of Predator. And I think that it's an effective look for the guy. One, it's manly. Now, he doesn't need props to look more masculine, but it doesn't hurt, too. Um, and two, it's sophisticated. It gives his characters a little extra nuance that allows him to be more than just a vein-popping muscle mass freak. But it doesn't take long here in this movie. Uh, I'm talking about Arnold, but it's not just Arnold in this movie. You can't have a hero uh, without the villain. And soon enough, we meet the movie's secret weapon, and that's Richard Dawson. Now, this is the kind of casting that I absolutely live for. Uh, it's a meta move that speaks to our own relationship with game shows and what was considered reality television at that point. And who better to play this role than the game show host, the smooth-talking, charming host of the Family Feud and star of Match Game, Richard Mother-Effing Dawson. That's who. He is so charismatic. He reminds me of Martin Sheen in The Dead Zone. Fast thinking, fast talking, and utterly dangerous. Now, as the movie was playing out, I, I realized that it was doing such a good job at world building. You don't need that opening exposition dump of a title scroll. The movie effectively creates a sense of setting with commercials of the running man, shots of the futuristic cityscape, and Jesse the Body Ventura's Captain Freedom's uh, Richard Simmon-esque workout video. You know, I mean, it, it really just establishes this world. You know, and then also we have the network studio. We just have posters for television shows like The Hate Boat. Um, and then there's, uh, there's one about, um, like, climbing for dollars, which is just ruthless. And Killing at one point says, get me the Justice Department Entertainment Department. 
What a loaded sentence. The fact that the Justice Department has something called the Entertainment Department tells us so much about this world. I'm telling you, we don't need that, that opening scroll. Now, Arnold soon captures a hostage. <laughs> okay, Amber Mendez, the tenant of his brother's old apartment, and proceeds to flirt with her with romantic lines like, Remember, I can break your neck like a chicken's, and later, I can strangle you in front of the whole audience. Arnold doesn't wait to be on TV to be the running man as he hightails it after Amber calls him out for being the infamous Ben Richards, fugitive extraordinaire. He's quickly captured and is introduced to Killian. It's a quick scene. It's a fun scene that allows both actors to trade barbs at one another. Arnold is forced into the running man when his friends are threatened, and he's then forced to undergo a quick but impactful barrage of medical treatments that are effectively portrayed as invasive. I don't know, maybe it's just how they shove the black rubber blocks into his mouth. Um, I don't know what it is. You know, I've definitely seen other movies where the actors have to go through much more invasive uh, treatments. Uh, but this one, this one uh, I thought was effective. Again, we get a sense of the coldness of the world like I was talking about before. Um, climbing for dollars, which a man is just literally climbing a rope with dogs ready to tear him apart. Um, and while watching television, Amber sees a news report that falsifies the truth from the day before, so we're getting the sense that something isn't right here. Now, The Running Man begins in full uh, with an extended scene of dancers moving to synthastic 80s beats, and we're introduced to our stalkers one by one, WWE style, or excuse me, WWF style. The first being Buzzsaw, who lifts a motorcycle over his head. And then Killian comes out with the swagger of Bobby the Brain Heenan in his heyday, channeling his own experience from hosting talk shows while teasing the bloodthirst from the audience. He even gets to include his real-life trademark signature move, kissing the audience members. We get nice teases of what's to come through posters in the offices of the different American gladiator-type stalkers, and soon after, Arnold signs his contract and plunges the pen into the goon's back, 80s style. It's perfect. It's such a great encapsulation of what makes an 80s movie an 80s movie. And whenever I think about The Running Man, it's that scene for whatever reason. I don't know. It stuck out to young me when I was a kid. It's just that's what comes to mind. Right before Ben is sent into The Running Man, Killian and uh, reneges on his deal and sends his two buddies into the game along with Arnold. And before Arnold is fired into the game, I mean, this is shameful here. I mean, he utters his most famous catchphrase of I'll be back. Now, naturally, you immediately think of the Terminator, right, when he says that. Uh, and in comparison, the running man will never hold up. So it was not a good idea by any means. But Killian's sly retort of only in reruns is a pretty awesome comeback. Now, what's interesting here uh, is the depiction of the audience members. Um, the story makes the point of, of really singling out either the middle-aged or elderly um, and a lot of them women. So, I mean, it's just, you have your image of, like, your grandmother type or your mother type. So to see that type working against your associations or connotations, it's a pretty clever move. With Ben and his friends in the game, it's time to get into it. And this movie takes everything that's popular with the WWF and injects it with steroids, creating living, breathing, video game-styled bosses that you need to beat before moving on to the next level. The introductions to each of the villains are so cartoonish. It's gleefully cheesy. You know, and I was going to talk about how it incorporates the sensation of the American Gladiators, but when I checked the dates, the Running Man predates the American Gladiators by two years. Anyway, we meet Sub-Zero, 
A supervillain whose trademark is a uh, razor-sharp hockey stick. I mean, it's so dumb. I mean, like, what can I say about it? I mean, I can't criticize it. I mean, that's the thing, is that, like, anyone that, like, critiques the movie, I think, negatively and says that that's a point against the movie, I, I just, I, I think that you're, you're kind of missing the point here. You know, I just mentioned how it takes on video game logic. I mean, this movie, more so than, act than any actual video game adaptation, captures the feeling of being in a video game. You know, each boss that Arnold has to defeat comes equipped with a themed setting, as in the case of Sub-Zero, who batters the running man uh, with a skating rink from hell and exploding hockey pucks. Again, guys, come on. I mean, this is so over the top, you can't criticize it. You just have to embrace it for what it is. And it's such a wonderfully dated look into the mindset of the 1980s, a decade which did the future so well. Especially in retrospect, because the gluttony and balls-to-the-wall craziness of that decade feel futuristic. Especially the dystopian future that the uh, 1980s like to depict in a lot of their movies. Uh, specifically this one. You know, Arnold gets rid of Sub-Zero with a roll of barbed wire to the throat. And he has not one, but two quips. One being, he was a real pain in the neck. Okay, which is the more effective one. And the other one, I have no idea what it means. Okay, I don't know if I'm not hearing Arnold's delivery accurately because of the accent, or if the line is as bad as I think that it is. But he says, and I quote, This is Sub-Zero. Now he's plain zero. I, again, I, I, I don't know if that's what he says. But that line is so bad, I wish that they added the Debbie Downer wah, wah, at the end. I, I just couldn't believe it. Oh my god. And, and then there's a scene, okay? Okay, I'm, the more I talk about this movie, the more I'm actually falling in love with it. And I loved rewatching it. Um, and, and just so everyone knows, I, I, I watched a, a bunch of movies for review uh, over the last couple days because I got. I have actually five reviews to record, and I'm hoping to record all of them in the span of like a day and a half, um, the running band being the, the first of them. But anyway, I mean, of everything that I've watched and consumed over the last couple days, the more I think about the running man, the more I'm actually enjoying the experience. Because there, there, there are scenes that, that just have these like little textures and flavors. There is a scene in this movie where Richard Dawson is yelling at the Justice Department. Okay, um, and and they're arguing about you know whatever that what's going on the Running Man the fact that Sub Zero has been killed right okay now in the middle of him yelling he winds up getting into an argument with whoever is on the other line about Gilligan's Island okay and and it it doesn't cut away it gives uh, Richard Dawson I don't know maybe it was ad libbed I, I don't know but it gives him time to actually get into this argument you only get one end of the conversation, but spends enough time for it to just be, to, to, to be just wacky enough. I mean, it is so random, okay, so weird that in the middle of this, the, this movie where you have these killers on, on ice skates and exploding hockey pucks, where the, the main villain can all of a sudden get into a, an irate argument about Gilligan's Island, it's, it's one of the reasons I, I just, I'm, I'm loving this movie more and more. And then we meet Buzzsaw and Dynamo. And Buzzsaw, by the way, looks like, like a 1990s comic book character just completely decked out in chainsaws. And then Dynamo comes out singing opera while shooting electricity. Again, again, I... Maybe you can say it's not for you. I'd be like, hey, you know what? It's doing something here. It's not for me. But I don't think that you can look at a movie like this and say that the movie's bad. Um, Amber Mendez is then thrown into the running man and immediately catches up to the heroes. I don't know how, uh, but he, and she does. And soon after, Dynamo and Buzzsaw show up 
uh, each driving a different vehicle, Buzzsaw on a bike, and then Dynamo on what looks like a Boy Scouts uh, boxcar racer. Um, Buzzsaw uh, proceeds to give me my favorite visual in the movie, Arnold being dragged behind him on the motorcycle. I, I can't do it justice, um, but you just need to see it. Just YouTube the scene. I'm sure that's out there. It's just Arnold is being trailed behind the motorcycle and his head is just slamming just up and down in the dirt. And I don't know if my head is imagining it or not, but I, 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 can, I can hear Arnold's wails uh, of pain as his head is going up and down. He like, Again, I don't know if, if that happens or if it's his mind. Um, it might be in my mind, but it's, it's definitely something that had me cracking up. It's unintentionally hilarious. I loved every second. And Arnold flips Buzzsaw's bike. Uh, they engage into a hand-to-hand or uh, rather like a chainsaw-to-fist fight. And at one point, again, again, just little things I love about this movie, it's so clear that the chainsaw is not, you know, it's not on. I mean, it's just a static chain. It's, it's not doing anything. Um, and in a force of wills, Arnold is clearly going to overpower Buzzsaw and rips him up from below. Uh, Dynamo, meanwhile... Okay, I'm sure that others have written about the fact he looks like a light bright board, so I'm not going to dwell. I'm not going to say anything about it. But he electrocutes one of the characters, and he's undone by his own driving. Now, I just, I love this movie because everyone speaks in snappy 80s one-liners. You know, Laughlin, who's dying by chainsaw, says, look, he doesn't tell them, like, I'm dying. You guys need to get away. He doesn't say that. He says, like, and it's just perfect 80s dialogue. He goes, I'm going somewhere, but not with you. Buzzsaw took care of my traveling arrangements. Don't let us down. I don't want to be the only a-hole in heaven. Like, no, that's not what you're going to say when you die, you know? I, but but if you're in an 80s movie, yes, that's exactly how you're going to talk as you die. That's why I love this movie. After the death of Buzzsaw and the takedown of Dynamo, Killian offers Ben an offer. Ben unsurprisingly refuses uh, by ripping the uh, camera off of the wall and destroying it. And then we're introduced to our next themed villain, Fireball, who demonstrates his fire skills, and to show off, he flies off with a jetpack. It's during this time when Killian realizes that he's no longer in control of his own show, as the audience starts betting on Richards making the next kill. Unknowingly, Ben has become a star and the figurehead of the people. Fireball flies in and chases after Ben and Amber, who continue to exchange a flirty back-and-forth rapport with one another. For a guy who has long-range pyro capabilities, by the way, Pyro could do a better job at taking out Ben from a distance. His thoughtlessness allows Ben to just start tossing oil-filled barrels at Fireball, which results in an explosion that shows that uh, Fireball is fireproof. Amber then realizes that the winners of The Running Man don't survive, despite what the commercials may have told the audience. Fireball might be fireproof, but he's not immune to the powers of Arnold's one-liners, which include, how about a light, and what a hothead. It's at that point that our head stalker is called for duty. Jesse, the body, Ventura's Captain Freedom, who rejects the flash and pizzazz of the games and wants to go in unadorned. Now, they've been teasing this character throughout the entire movie, and until now, I thought that Ventura was hesitant about going back into the games as he's grown soft from success and not having to perform. To Killian, he argues that 10 years before, the running man was less flashy and garish. So, I mean, the answer is probably a mixture of both. You know, is he just hiding behind his excuses? Probably. 
Ben is brought into the underground resistance while Killian doctors footage to suppress the resistance with false footage of a cage match style fight between Jesse the Body Ventura and Arnold, beating each other senseless and throwing each other into barbed wire fencing before Captain Freedom impales fake Ben on a spike studded wall. Now this predates the 1990s wrestling trend of extreme wrestling by the way, but this match looks very, very ECW. One of my only complaints about this movie is that that's it that we get for uh, Jesse the Body Ventura on Schwarzenegger Showdown. It's just a fake match. Which, you know, it, it, that could be a commentary on Jesse's wrestling background. But honestly, who doesn't want to watch these two powerhouses go at it? On one hand, I like that Captain Freedom hid behind his excuses. But at the same time, I mean, when you get Jesse the Body Ventura and Arnold Schwarzenegger together, make the most out of it. That's two co-stars of Predator, for Christ's sake. That's two future U.S. governors. Have them go at it. With fake Ben killed, Killian thinks the heat is off, but what he doesn't know is that the resistance is building around Ben, who is now moving against Killian, making good on his promise of coming back. Ben and company storm the network while the resistance takes over the satellite feed. The people see the truth as Ben storms in with the one-liner, It's showtime! We're then reintroduced to Dynamo, who gets uh, creepily rapey before being electrocuted. And then it all comes down to Killian and Ben. Killian tries to wheedle his way out of the situation, blaming television for it, and Ben gives him a taste of his own medicine by throwing him in the running man pod and sending him on his way. What's never explained is why Killian's pod explodes when it lands on a billboard. But it's 1980s, and that's the end, so we know there needs to be an explosion. And then, oh my god, it just couldn't get any better. I didn't think that it could, but it does. It so does. Amber shows up with a fantastic... 80s theme, which, as you'll know, opened this episode of the podcast and will close this episode of the podcast. And I'm thinking about just making it the permanent theme of the podcast from this point forward. Now, in my review of Silver Bullet, I talked about how that movie was the most 80s of King adaptation so far. But this one, sorry, Corey Haim, you know, but this one clearly dethrones Silver Bullet. Arnold Schwarzenegger picks up that, that wheelchair and just throws it off of the bridge. Which, even though it's landing in some water, no doubt explodes. So, I mean, this movie is just great. I mean, not only is it just a nice snapshot of the ridiculousnesses of the, the, the late 80s and the sensibilities at the time, but, I mean, in 2015, it speaks to our reality television world. Sure, things look a little bit different. You know, I mean, th that particular style of game shows is not as prevalent as what reality shows are today, but with reality shows being scripted and thereby fake, I think that that says a lot about, you know, what is occurring within the confines of this particular story as well. And then it depicts the media, which doctors the truth. It doesn't matter which which side of the, the liberal or conservative side you're on. I mean, it, news networks cater to their audience, to a specific ideology, with, you know, the news in our world is always doctored to be palatable to your specific leaning, you know, whether it's, you know, conservatism or liberalism. Uh, so, I mean, that there also speaks to what's going on in this, in this story. So, comes time for the great head-to-head -head, uh, competition between the book versus the movie. So, The Running Man as a television show in the book, or The Running Man as a television show in the movie. I'm going to go with the movie, because it's just so larger than life. 
the rules are just laid out clearer. Um, it's very immediate tension um, and conflict. Uh, I think that the book can be improved upon. Uh, so I'm going totally with the movie. The Hunters versus the Stalkers. The Hunters uh, were what they were called in the book. The Stalkers are what they're called in the movie. And I'm so going with the Stalkers because they're faceless in the book. I mean, like I said, the, each one in the movie has a very distinct theme. Um, each one has a very cartoonish, larger-than-life personality, uh, which is just great. It's just it's awesome. I love it. Um, so Stalkers all the way. Killian in the book versus Killian in the movie. It's Richard Dawson. I mean, seriously, you get Richard Dawson in the role of a TV game show host, how am I not going to go with Richard Dawson? And then Ben Richards, Ben in the book, we have this hard-boiled Ben, I don't like anything, my wife's a prostitute, there's the child who's sick, I, you know, like, whatever. I've seen that Ben so many times, been parodied to death by the time the 1990s came around, and everything was really grim and gritty, and then we have Ben over here, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm going to go with the king of the 1980s movies, action stars, and that is Arnold Schwarzenegger, it is a clean sweep across the board. The winner is very decidedly 1987's adaptation of The Running Man. I find the book so joyless and unnecessarily hard. It doesn't make for a fun read, while the movie, despite all of its cheesiness and its faults, is nothing but fun. So this is a clear cut, hands down victory for all the movie aficionados out there. This is a great celebration of the 1980s genre uh, tropes found within action movies loved every second of watching this movie which is not something that i can say for every stephen king adaptation but certainly one that i can say about the running man so everyone uh thank you for listening uh i am currently recording a bunch of episodes right now i'm putting down a microphone on this episode and i'll be picking it up for another episode uh, that will be coming around this particular time. So typically at this point, I say stick around for next week when I review X, Y, or Z. I don't know right now what the order is going to be, not because I don't know what's coming up next. I just don't know the order of how I'm going to be publishing these episodes. But just make sure that you stick around for whatever the next episode is of the Stephen King cast. And if you haven't done so already, please make sure that you head on over to iTunes to uh, subscribe and write a review if you get some time. Uh, I had two great reviews coming last night. I'm so appreciative of that. So the, the more reviews that get out there, the higher up on the, the library it gets. It just puts the Stephen King cast out there uh, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for fun, but at the same time, I want as many people as possible to listen to it, so you'd really be helping me out. So if you like the podcast and you tune in every week, just do me a solid um, and uh, subscribe over on iTunes. And as always, feel free to send me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And like I said, make sure that you come on back next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. Shouting from the highest, Stephen.